Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner, titled Brave New Medicine, a spiritual biography. Cynthia Lee, welcome back to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you for having me. Cynthia, this conversation falls in the broad scope of what we call spiritual biographies. But I realized that we could both quarrel with both the word spiritual and the word biography. Um, because um, it's not only the story of your evolution um, from um, childhood to who you are today, but it's also the story of a friendship, uh, and it's the story of mm. a journey of over 25 years of knowing each other and over a dozen years of um, really walking together in a journey of exploration of what it means to be human. So uh, in that uh, spirit, let me just start by saying... Um, you are a physician uh, trained in internal medicine. Um, you have studied um, integrative medicine, functional medicine, intuitive medicine. Uh, you have deeply studied Qigong. You have reflected um, on how all these different pieces fit and your current understanding of healing, which is one of the subjects we will explore in depth. Uh, you are the author of a um, memoir, Brave New Medicine, which um, has uh, received considerable critical acclaim. Uh, and you also have a, a new book out that you have edited uh, of uh, teachings of one of your Qigong teachers, um, and are, to my knowledge, reflecting uh, on further writing. So, um, what would you add? That sounds wonderful. <laughs> and I would just add, I, I feel like, you know, just before this conversation started, we were talking about, yeah, this journey of being human. And so I'm feeling that very much today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're also married to uh, an extraordinary uh, man and friend of mine, David Hochschild. Uh, you have two uh, wonderful daughters. Uh, you and David have both an extended family and a community of friends that um, staggers my imagination as a, an introvert. So anyway, that might do for, for a start, yeah? Great, yeah. yes. So let's start with this question of what, what healing means to you. Um, we've both worked in healing for a long time, but your understanding of healing has continued to evolve. How would you describe what you understand by healing today? Hmm. I mean, I think in some ways, you know, it's a very, it's a very, simple question, and I, I don't mean simple as an easy, but simple as an essential and very fundamental. Um, 
I'm at the place right now where healing and living are really one and the same. And how do we live in abundance is directly related to what is healing. And, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people know, right, the root of the word to heal means to become whole. And um, I think for a long time, it was, it was a conceptual idea of wholeness and um, emotional, psychological, uh, and it was a framework. But I, I don't feel like I've fully lived into what wholeness is as a sort of as a much more integrated human being um, until the last several years. And that's really what I've been exploring. And so if I had to distill it down, that there is this state, you know, and there's there's a lot of different languages for it. So, you know, there's frameworks in wisdom traditions. There's, um, <clears throat> there's also uh, science frameworks as well. And as you mentioned in the, in the intro, um, Qigong, so in embodied consciousness um, traditions, there's also a lot, of, uh, a lot of experiences that have been described. Um, so, but I'll just use the scientific one because it's, it's one that resonates deeply for me and one that I use with my patients now, uh, which is a state called physiological coherence. And um, it's different than straight up uh, relaxation, you know. So the, I would say the, the previous scientific and clinical model would be like you're either in fight or flight mode, stress mode, or you're in uh, relaxation mode, parasympathetic rest and digest or rest and restore um, in that mode. And of course, there's always a little bit of a balance. But the more we can be relaxed, the more we can heal because if we're under stress, you know, we're, we're, we're not able to heal um, or become whole, whatever that wholeness is. But in this state now that neuroscientists have, have really mapped out and also measured and also measured the effects of, um, the, the brain waves, the heart waves, and the, um, the respiration waves, so the breath, which is correlated with the body, all become synchronized. And so, yes, the parasympathetic, the rest and digest mode of the nervous system is activated, but that alone is a low energy state. So, so healing can happen, but it's kind of slow. It's a little bit passive. In this coherent state, it's an activated energy state. And so healing can happen and often quite quickly and as I kind of describe it, almost as an afterthought. So we're not even focused on healing as a goal. We're just focused on becoming in this coherent state within ourselves. And then healing happens. Um, The other thing that happens is that uh, we can also move about our days much more in flow, right? So in in Qigong, which is based on the Taoist principle of, uh, there's something called Wu Wei, which is a Mandarin term that means doing without doing or effortless action. So it's not about passivity or idleness. It's about, um, again, coming into this coherence, not just within ourselves, but actually attuning to the coherence around us. Um, Nature is a really good example, right, of that coherent state. And then things happen. And in fact, things happen quite quickly. And so you know, I think we all have encountered people where it's like, God, that person just looks like they're dancing through life or there's a flow to it. And 
So that's another way in which the healing can happen much more quickly. And again, it's because we're coming into this sense of wholeness, not of just integrated wholeness, mind, body, heart within ourselves, but we're connecting now to a bigger whole with which we're completely fluid. You know, we're, we're all breathing the same atmosphere. We're all, you know, and now kind of my leading edge right now is um, in the quantum fields. So we actually know now that there are fields. There's a field between us. There's a field between us and the, the community um, that we are surrounded by. And there's a field in this space and it's just filling everything. It's, it's acting almost as if a third party And so the more we become kind of attuned to that and we can come into flow, um, these kind of um, quantum leaps in healing happen. And again, it's really focused on that, the root of that word is coming into wholeness and just understanding a much fuller, not just understanding with the mind, but experiencing with the heart and the body of the much more expanded nature of who we are rooted in the body. Mm. Thank you for that. In the Commonweal Cancer Health Program, which you know I've been doing for 37 years, and in my imperfect um, approach to what healing means, we have a little little description of healing, which you've referenced in many ways, but I just want to lay it out mm-hmm. as we begin to contextualize that with what I regard as the very advanced description of healing that you've just offered us. And we say that healing is different from curing, that a cure is something that takes away a disease and it doesn't come back, that healing is a movement toward wholeness, Uh, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, if you give meaning to the word spiritual, that it can happen uh, both in moving toward greater physical health, but it can also uh, take place in uh, losing ground physically and even in the dying process, Uh, that um, there are certain general conditions of healing. Uh, We talk about seven healing practices eating well, moving more, reducing stress, finding love and support, uh, creating sacred space, um, uh, uh, and uh, finding, finding meaning in life, among others. Um, and that while those are what we call common pathways to healing, that very often the most important pathways to healing are what we call unique pathways to healing, Mm -hmm. that there is something in our lives that at this moment, uh, maybe on an ongoing basis, but at least at this moment, is the crucial thing. Uh, The great uh, mystic William Blake said, if you would help another person, you must do so. In, uh, in unique particulars. Um, and so we often find in the Cancer Health Program that while we can talk about the you know, seven healing practices, that it's often those unique conditions which are, are the real trigger to opening to 
to the most powerful healing. Yes. Now, I lay that out for two reasons. One is for you to comment on it. But secondly, because um, I find um, in our friendship, um, uh, it makes me smile because we, uh, this is a parenthesis, you and I were driving out to see our friend and colleague, Rachel Naomi Remen, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And on the way back, uh, we got into a conversation about how we both deflect, uh, how we both uh, deflect uh, comments that come to us that, you know, somebody sees us as some wonderful thing and we say, oh, no, not really, or whatever. And you were saying to me, Michael, you need to stop deflecting, right? <laughs> uh, you need to allow the person to give you the gift of this perception of you. Um, so... Uh, well, you need to receive it. And, you, and I need to receive it. But this will be an interesting uh, conversation for you because you will be receiving my projections or my, and more than projections, my appreciations of you, my deep appreciations. So all of that little, uh, and without deflection, by the way. Yes. And so all of that uh, is... Uh, a prelude to what I was about to say, which is that in our friendship uh, over the, you know, we've known each other for 25 years, but over the last 12 years, we really engaged in this deep journey together into what we sometimes call the, the key field or the key Christ field or whatever it was, just our separate but parallel sometimes overlapping journeys into um, this field that you've actually just been talking about. And for me, you have almost always been ahead of me in that journey. And I don't mean that I haven't done some useful things in the world, but what I've done that's been useful in the world has tended to be on a fairly practical level, you know, not exclusively. I, I do work in healing, as you know, but a lot of it has been about commonweal and other very pragmatic things. And you've had this deep focus. The image I've had of you, as you know, is I see you in a kind of a field of blue ether. It's like a blue sky, but it has a liquid quality. And you are swimming upward toward the light. And you never stop this effort, this movement upward. So because um, you tend to move to the top of every field that you enter rather rapidly, I have watched you for 12 years move through integrative medicine, functional medicine, intuitive medicine, Qigong, uh, and also through two very life-threatening illnesses and what you learned from those. So for me, I haven't been able to take all of that in experientially, but I have been able to follow it. I have been able to understand what you were describing to me. Um, so that is the context in which I say this little encapsulated vision of healing, which I think is useful. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, 
But what interests me is that you are really proposing that we move beyond it, and in a way that I find very persuasive. Mm. In your experiences with your two uh, principal Qigong teachers, with the first one, you described going on retreats with him with several very ill patients. I think they had Parkinson's disease, right? Yes. And they came in in wheelchairs, right? Yeah, they were wheelchair-bound for months. Right. Advanced, rapidly progressing Parkinson's. And, yeah, by the end of the week, you know, walking, walking. Right, it sounds like one of those stories, right? It sounds like They threw away their crutches and walked, but they did. But they did. Yeah. And, you know, one of my, well, so first off, let me just go back to the beautiful framework you just laid out is I would say first, yes, um, the healing the healing path has to be unique because in order for each of us to come into our wholeness, uh, we have to release and transform whatever is limiting us. And that just differs. It's as different as our fingerprints, right? So um, it's going to be different. And I would, and then the other thing I wanted to say also was that, um, you know, this image of me swimming, swimming upward toward the light, um, you know, I would say initially I felt like I was swimming, but it wasn't necessary. It wasn't because I was ambitious. Um, It was because I had pretty debilitating, complex uh, health challenges that I felt anyways, in my experience, I felt forced to do it. Like I have no alternative and I, I don't like the way I feel. I want to reclaim my life. Therefore, I'm going to go, right? So I'm going to, oh, there's this broader expansion of uh, integrative medicine. All right, how do I change my lifestyle? Oh my God, let's go into functional medicine, looking at hidden root causes of these chronic inflammatory conditions. So looking at, you know, hidden allergens like gluten and dairy, looking at hidden, um, you know, stealth infections like, you know, gut parasites or Epstein-Barr virus, you know, Lyme disease, uh, Long COVID is a really good example, right, of, of these stealth infections um, that kind of linger in terms of chronic inflammation. So like begin, and, and toxins actually, which was a lot of overlap of how I got actually introduced to Commonweal was mm-hmm. the environmental health stuff. But I began as a, as a doctor to think like, okay, like, wait a minute, what can we do to help our bodies detoxify? Um, as we're living in this world, right, that is very complicated in terms of the factors we're exposed to. Um, And then I suddenly found I had, I went from very few options in conventional medicine to, and I should just state my conditions were autoimmune thyroiditis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and dysautonomia, which is a, a, an uncoordinated, unsynchronized autonomic nervous system. So that just, you know, things like blood pressure, heart rate, digestion, breathing, all those things become very, um, a little bit chaotic. So it's it's a very difficult and debilitating condition that a lot of people live with, including uh, we're seeing a lot of it in long COVID now. So, um, so that was, you know, so then I went from very few uh, options in conventional internal medicine to kind of infinite. And, you know, you talk to one practitioner of integrative or functional medicine, you get one diet and another one recommends another diet. Like it was, 
it became actually very overwhelming. And the number of tests and diagnostics and still having grays was very overwhelming. And so then I, again, swimming up, you know, in through this ether, I felt like, whoa, wait a minute, how do you choose? And then, you know, life would present me with various teachers and I learned, oh, you can use intuition. I can tune in. I can, instead of ruling things out, I can rule things in and be much more efficient. It was a very pragmatic way of approaching health, right? So it wasn't, I wasn't trying to be um, an expert in everything. I was just trying to feel better. Um, and so, and a lot of that is the stuff that we do, right? Um, and you beautifully named it out, listed, listed those seven or eight parameters. Um, and what I'm learning right now, well, so then I'll just, I'll kind of just give the brief overview was in 2017, I had a second health crisis. So, uh, I was, you know, kind of on this very steady swimming upward path. And then I had a second health crisis, um, where I was teetering on a pretty precarious edge for a few months. And that's when I really began. I had already been practicing Qigong, which is an embodied consciousness practice working with subtle energies for about four years at that point and began very pragmatically. It was like a rehabilitation exercise and it was helping a lot with my equilibrium and with my energy levels. Um, but when I came to that second crisis, um, I just, I felt the smallness of what I knew cumulatively, you know, kind of relative to this great mystery that is the universe um, and what is life and death. And so I actually ended up surrendering as I was practicing uh, Qigong from my bed and surrendered again, not into like, not to give up, but to surrender actually into this field, which I didn't actually know I was doing. I was just practicing coherence. So I surrendered and then, you know, I was still though doing integrative and functional medicine, right? Like I, I was going to the doctor, I was receiving acupuncture treatments, I was um, getting IV infusions, you know, antibiotics, I was taking supplements and, and meds. And so, and I was, you know, as, when I was able to, I was doing movement and exercise as I was able to. So it's not an either or thing because I initially I kind of swung again, like, oh, it's none of those things. It's this thing. It's, it's the energy and you work with the energy. And, you know, going back to that point about the Wu Wei, uh, the, the art of effortless action is the art of effortless healing was that I began to realize like, oh, I'm doing all these things, but I'm doing it in this state of flow. So I'm not even thinking about my health goal. I'm just being in the present moment. And then what is the response at the present moment? And, oh, thank God, I have all these other tools and I have these resources, the community around us. And then I know, you know, I have an acupuncturist that I've been seeing. So it was that I let go of this limit. What was limiting me was this strong attachment to healing and what that looked like and what that path looked like. But I wouldn't have gotten there had I not had this, you know, this second uh, occurrence. And so it's really changed how I not just approach my life, how I approach parenting, how I approach my patients. Um, but yeah, but I found that the healing kind of happens 
uh, because I'm not really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. When, as I said, we've known each other for about 25 years, and <clears throat> as you mentioned, we came together uh, uh, in early meetings of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is part of Commonweal's work, and you were uh, part of a, a small group, I think, called Moms Against Pops, wasn't that the name of it your group? It was called Moms. This is a Mom. long time ago. Yeah. It was when my older daughter, who's now 18, was just born, so yeah. Moms. Uh, I can't even remember what it stands for well, now. But, the point but, was but it, that they you were organized. Yeah, we were yeah. an activist group. You were yes. an activist group, and you were very well aware that since human beings are at the top of the food chain, that breast milk uh, contains more toxics than almost any other food, and that's what we feed babies, and mothers download a good deal of their body burden to their babies. And so for any sentient mother, that's a concern. That's actually one of the principal reasons that we got so deeply involved in the chemical issues. So anyway, that was 25 years ago then, when we really reconnected about our interest in healing, you were coming off, what was it, close to eight or 10 years of being largely bedridden. Yeah, largely housebound. Largely yeah. housebound. Mm-hmm. And so that, and so you were really working to, you know, with, as we said, integrative and functional uh, medicine. And then the second health crisis where we really worried that we were going to lose you, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it was at that point, I remember coming over to your house at your husband David's request to visit you, and you were sitting uh, in a window seat with a, a child's coloring book, a Christian child's coloring yes. book. Mm-hmm. And just, just, working with that book and you had been brought up even in a very evangelical household uh, your parents had founded a, an evangelical uh, church but you were in the process of rediscovering a completely different understanding of what Christ energy is mm-hmm. and how it relates to your sense of the key field Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Which actually is another uh, dimension, I think, I would say, of healing and, and defining healing um, as an experience of this wholeness is actually is retur- is returning. There's a there's a returning home, mm-hmm. kind of whatever that means, you know. And again, it's going to be different for everyone because we all have different um, different understandings, different histories, different contexts for what home is. Um, but it's it's reclaiming parts of ourselves that, you know, it's not a linear thing, right? Healing is much more spiral. So it's it's a returning and integrating these parts that we actually think are not relevant anymore, um, but coming back to them in a different way. And so for me, yeah, as you said, was... Um, so the, so the one, you know, one dimension I could say, oh, okay, I surrendered into this, um, this coherent field, right? And I became much more coherent. I could organize my inner energy states and I could organize the field kind of around me. And so I was kind of moving through, um, even at a very brittle uh, point in time. But 
the other piece that was really surprising about this whole experience was that, um, yeah, on, on that edge, I wanted my childhood Bible. And it's, I, I hadn't touched it in, I don't know, 30 years. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner. Um, so I was raised evangelical in the heartland of Texas and um, our church, you know, which my parents co-founded was really our second home. And, uh, but as a teenager, I really struggled with the duality of heaven and hell. And, you know, as I was taught, most of the people around me that I was looking at were going to suffer, uh, suffer like eternally. And uh, so it was very disturbing for me. I, you know, went to college, uh, went to medical school, really with a kind of a drive to reduce suffering that was happening here on earth. And, um, you know, and curious, of course, about how that intersected with, if anything, if consciousness or souls or spirit, whatever you want to call it, continued afterwards, like, could we actually reduce, you know, the suffering there as well? So I would say that was a conscious and a very subconscious driver for me in going into medicine. And, uh, but when I, when I kind of left for medical school, that was kind of my new religion. And I, I really left the church and its teachings behind. Um, and so 2017, you know, the second health crisis, it was really surprising. Um, it, I remember like how surprised my husband was. My parents were really surprised, uh, but they had kept my childhood Bible this whole time. Uh, even having moved, you know, to China for 20 years and come back, they still had that. And then, and, but it really surprised me as well. So when I began to read uh, about Jesus, you know, I'm like looking through this Bible and I'm looking at my childhood handwriting and um, beginning to integrate these threads as I was reading about Jesus, you know, there's a story where he cures a, a leper, right? Kind of, you know, and I had seen these things in the in the Qigong retreats and, and I knew these stories, right, by heart, but they had become rote and they were so, they were so distanced and removed from like kind of pertinent present day life. It was like, oh, oh yeah, this guy 2000 years ago, you know, kind of did that. Um, that it's very easy to, to embrace in the past, but to embrace something like that in the present reality uh, was something quite different. And so, and there were other stories that I had kind of even skimmed by where Jesus is walking through a crowd and he, he knows that somebody touches him because he, he feels energy actually drain from him. And I was like, wait a minute, like, that's like, that's energy, <laughs> you know, that, that's chi. And, um, so, and then also reading about all the rituals that he taught his disciples, um, you know, when he was going to be crucified, right? He broke bread and drank wine. And it was really about not thinking about him or analyzing him, but ingesting his essence, which is in a total mind, body, heart coherence act. And so I just began to, the Bible read like a totally different text and and then there were these parables, right? Which are these, I would read them as tales of kind of morality. You know, they had a lesson to them. 
But um, again, reading them in the context of my own life, like there's one about the parable of the, um, of the prodigal son, right? The son who leaves his house, his father's house, goes out in the world, experiences things, kind of squanders some of the gifts that he's been given, comes back and is received and just totally welcomed. And I, I saw myself in that story. And it was like a living story, not just a, you know, a, a moral story in a, uh, from 2,000 years ago. So all of these things began to really uh, awaken in me a wholeness, an integration. And then this Qigong practice, which I had had for four years, um, even though it was very, very healing, the, the energy field felt very impersonal. And suddenly I realized like, oh, and actually you were a key part of this uh, understanding um, in teaching me about the difference between Jesus and the Christ, right? So usually when I was growing up, it was always Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And uh, I never even knew what Christ was. And so, and, and there was one uh, talk that I went to at the, when you were giving at the Integral Yoga Institute, um, where I heard it actually for the first time about the Christ being consciousness. And so when I was at the edge, 2017, uh, and I was reading through the Bible, I began to understand that the, Jesus may have been crucified um, and resurrected, but that the Christ was the living part, right? The Christ was living energy, was, was this field, was this consciousness. And so I began to experience this invisible field as a very intimate relationship as opposed to something that was a little bit abstract. So that actually uh, catapulted my Qigong practice. And it was a really big factor in this very radical healing that I experienced. And so, so what happened was, right, I was so in the present moment, you know, doing things, taking care of myself, uh, but in this flow state and in such a present coherent state that my healing happened very quickly. And before I knew it, kind of in hindsight, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like that, that actually normally would have taken probably years. And um, it happened in a matter of months. So, um, so, I be, so this experience of a radical healing and trying to understand it from the inside out has kind of been the, what has been, you know, kind of my leading edge for the last a few years in how do I work with patients and how do I work with larger groups where there's a field amongst the group that they can really harness to to potentiate each other's healing. There's so many directions we could take this at each point, uh, but I, I want to take a few moments now, first of all, just to mention that our mutual friend Kelly Turner chose you as one of her radical remission mm. stories, and she interviewed you, and there's a wonderful tape of, of your experience. In other words, Kelly uh, has done some of the best work on, on radical remissions, very, mm. very sound work, and has very carefully selected the people that she regarded as having recovered from uh, extreme illness situations, and she chose you as one of those. So that speaks to what you're describing here. Um, sometimes in describing myself, I've used the word 
that I'm something of a mystic. And uh, and in our dialogues, you said, oh, no, I don't like that language so much. I'd rather speak of invisible forces, I think, is your word. Is that right? Invisible. Yeah. Or are you talking about mystery versus yeah. Yeah, mystery. like the great mystery versus, versus invisible forces? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I like it because it, I don't know. There's something more playful to it. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of like Star Wars, or you well, know. But it's um, also more concrete. In a it's more sense. concrete because yeah. of the quantum science for yeah. me, anyways. The quantum science now that's available, like there's quantum science in terms of like okay, there's dark matter and dark energy, and it makes up probably an estimated 96 percent of the universe. Like we don't know, we can't measure, we have no idea, we can only I don't even know how they do it, actually, but math, math, mathematicians and physicists, either they calculate it indirectly or, or they infer it. I don't know what they're doing, but that's the figure that they've come up with. And, and that's kind of fun, but it's kind of like, well, what do you do with it? You know. So I, I'm just, again, I, I, I feel like I come from a very pragmatic, organic, human, like, hey, I just want to actually understand if it has any relevance to daily life and to healing. And if so, how do we apply it? So when I use the term invisible forces, I, for me, I can grasp it a little bit more. So just, I mean, we don't even have to go into it. And I'm certainly not a physics expert. So, But what I know or what I've learned is that there are three general categories, you know, electromagnetic and gravitational. And then, then some would say maybe subtler uh, energy fields. But that they, like I mentioned earlier, they're actually all around us. And now the prevailing theory is that all of matter actually emerges from these fields. If we didn't have the fields, we actually wouldn't even have matter. And what's interesting to me as a Qigong practitioner is there, there's a whole theory of Qigong, right? And we call it Qigong science. And the Qigong science is based on millennia of you know, of people practicing and passing on this wisdom. And where does that wisdom come from? I mean, we don't know, but they've been teaching basically this, that everything is chi, everything is subtle energy, and that matter emerges from the chi field. And so when I, the more I learn about these things, but it's more that I, directly practice it through these embodied consciousness practices, right? Every day that it's just like, oh, this is really ordinary. This is very ordinary. And so the way to use it, for example, um, is actually, I'll give an example that um, is very fresh in my mind, but this happened 18 years ago when I was a new mom. um, And I didn't know what it was at the time, but now I know it's the field was um, I was taking my, my infant to a, a, mother and, uh, a mother and baby yoga class. And, you know, it's not this standard yoga class where it's really peaceful and restful and all that. It's because you have all these infants, right? And at, at any given time, two or three moms are jiggling or burping or nursing or changing the diaper, right? It's like, the, and there's always ambient sounds in the background. There was one day I went and it was packed the studio. And so wall to wall, there were probably 30 moms and infants. 
And, um, and at one point, 10 minutes in, is like every single baby was crying. Every, nobody was practicing yoga. <laughs> you know, everyone is in an effort, not just for their baby, but for the room. Like, hey, you know, we got we to tend to our, our babies. So that's the doing part, right? Wasn't working. And, and then the, the yoga teacher just yells uh, across the room and just says, every mama, put your baby down. And so we were like, wait, what? You know, and she said, put your babies down and get into tree pose. You know, so tree pose, you're standing on one leg, the other leg is, mm-hmm. you know, on the inner thigh, and then you're going like this. So basically, all of your attention is inward. Mm-hmm. You have to focus. So we all did that. And I kid you not, it was like one of those miracles you know, that I saw at the Qigong retreat. The whole room quieted down. And I'm looking at my baby. I'm like, wait, what? And she's like gurgling, happy, whatever. And, but that was, that was the field. So what happened was we each got our own inner fields aligned, right? In that simple embodiment practice. Mind is inside the body and the heart is open. Then, right, with this pose, the heart is open. And then we're changing these these. Invisible forces around us, right? So there, it's like a third party, right? We're changing that, the water, the ether, if you want, that we're swimming in. And then that energy is what harmonizes the babies and allows the babies actually to come into that themselves. And so I see this time and time again with Qigong and with energy healing even, you know, a lot of the more traditional energy healing is I'm my energy I use to heal you. So after we do the healing, I'm going to need a little bit of restoration, right? I need to recharge, whatever. Um, but now so much of the energy healing is about changing the field. And then the field is what then heals the other person. And there's no, or I would say there's minimal diminishment of either person's energy, because it's this massive field uh, that is doing something, that is changing. So I can't, you know, again, my my thinking mind is limited in, in really being able to grasp it, but I see the effects over and over and over again, and mostly I feel it also within myself uh, of the changes. And so um, that's just kind of where we are. So again, in the spiral, a lot of people talk about, oh, we're at this place where we're going back to indigenous wisdom and we're reclaiming that. And yes, but because we're in the spiral, we're reclaiming that, but we're reclaiming it with our modern, right, kind of ideas and information and technologies. It's a, it's a constant evolution. It's not going back to what it was. Just like when I went back to my evangelical teachings, I wasn't going back to that. I was going back, but with who I was right now as a changed person. So as a species and as a planet, we are returning, as I understand it anyways, but from where we are now, so that the more we can integrate it, it's not an either or, it's not like we go back to that and then forget this. It's really about this integration. So that's really the heart of of healing. Speaking of this quantum field, We often share dreams and experiences um, 
And both of us have shared very powerful dreams with each other. And we both track our dreams as part of our lives. We also have the experience, each of us, of our dead speaking to us in ways that feel mm. persuasive. Um, we also sometimes have the experience of teachers who are no longer in the body coming to us in ways that are very strong. Um, you mentioned beginning to use intuition, but beyond that, you have worked extensively and I have worked a little bit with medical intuitives who have extraordinary mm. abilities. You yourself have developed uh, medical intuition at a level with your patients and your beloveds that you can often spot something that wouldn't have come directly to mind to a clinician about something. We both have intuitions of past lives. How do you hold these uh, phenomena of past lives, of the power of intuition to guide not only medical decisions, but life decisions. Um, teachers appearing mm. to us, our dead speaking to us. There's a level at which up until this point, you've been saying, I'm just a pragmatist. I needed to develop this in order to feel better. I've come to understand the science. Here's some little examples of coherence, all that. But these intuitions, or we don't have proof of mm -hmm. most of them, but experientially, they're extraordinarily real. And the intuitive medical or other intuitive things, we do have evidence that they actually change medical decisions or intuitions about life that turn out to be deeply true. And uh, we both know, and you've worked extensively with uh, a medical intuitive uh, who is able to do this a good deal of the time. So how do you hold that whole field of phenomena in terms of the quantum energy field that you've just been describing? Um, well, I, I guess I could lump it with the invisible forces, which I don't uh, purport to really understand. I don't, I don't feel like I hold them. Um, I observe them um, when they happen. And um, I will say, you know, uh, I don't know is a very, is a term, is a phrase that, that comes to mind is when you're, when I was listening to you, because there are many, most of the time, I don't even, um, if I get um, messages or I get, uh, like my dreams, for example, uh, which have been very powerful, um, very expansive, uh, 
you know, sometimes mind-blowing to where I need to actually ground, right? Um, in the beginning, I would say when I was starting to have them and when I was pre-2017, when I was more sort of goal-oriented towards like health or as some kind of like end goal, uh, which I would also say about healing is that because it's so closely entwined with living, it's, it's not, there's no end point, right? Like it's just about being alive and living abundantly. And what does that mean? So um, pre-2017, I was very much more goal oriented and like, okay, I want to get to this point of functionality and then I will, you know, I'll be kind of, I'll accept that and then I'll live my life and then kind of take it slowly from there. So, um, with intuition, which I developed, you know, as I mentioned earlier, as a way, as a tool to try to narrow down oh, what are the, what are the better therapies? What are the better tests? You know, um, it was useful, but since then, oh, and since then going back to your analogy about the swimming in the ether, I, and you know this too, because I've said it many times, I don't, I don't actually want to swim. And in fact, I don't feel like I'm swimming. I feel like I'm being propelled. And sometimes I feel like I'm kind of just bracing, like, how do I slow this down? Right? Like, like these experiences you're talking about that our awareness, because we're attuned more to wholeness, whatever that is, and these invisible fields, the experience of reality, of ordinary reality is much bigger than it used to be. And so how, how do I navigate that? And how do I continue to stay embodied? And what do I do with that information um, is what I, is kind of how I would um, rephrase that question. And so I, since the second health crisis, I've been much more, um, much, much less attached to what, what does that mean? And in fact, I use it less now as a like kind of as an overt tool, even in my medical consultations, um, because I can see my own attachments and that's where I become limited, right? So if I can use it in a really free state and not kind of be attached to uh, the outcome, then, you know, I'll happily use it. Um, so what I always start with, like, for example, like, um, let's say I had a, a dream where somebody... Um, right, somebody who had died appeared and had a message for me. In the past, I would kind of be like, oh, what does that mean? And oh, you know, and I would kind of follow up and like, oh, maybe talk to another person who knew that person and, and just kind of, is that a sign? You know, I kind of wanted to know. And where I am right now is I, I really observe it more. And oftentimes, if I can correlate it with something, I'll be like, oh, oh, okay, you know, actually that was that was kind of interesting. There was a correlation. And then if there's not a correlation, I'm like, oh, okay. There's no correlation that I can, or any significance or application that I can, you know, necessarily see right now. Sometimes it comes like, you know, three months later, maybe it's two years later. I don't know. And I'll be like, oh my God, you know, I had that dream. And so what I really, um, take all of these experiences and phenomenon to, to, to reflect to me is simply, is my consciousness showing me something about my consciousness? And that's kind of just at the fundamental level. So oftentimes it's, oh, 
oh, you know what? My consciousness was showing me something and I, that's an attachment that I have because I can feel it in my body. So my task is to actually let that go. Or, oh, you know what? Okay, like, let's say a teacher appeared. What does that mean? And was that teacher really communicating something to me? And on one level, it really doesn't matter. It just matters that, oh, my consciousness is showing me a message that perhaps I need to pay attention to. So I will say also, you know, um, just because it, it seems so fluid right now and so comfortable, that this was something, as you know, I had a lot of resistance to in the beginning and I had a lot of fear, uh, but I also had a lot of skepticism. So as I see it now is working through those, those, uh, those resistances was part of going beyond what limited me, right? And so now I can talk about it in a kind of matter of fact way, but it's because I've worked through a lot of that that I have a lot less fear. But, um, but I, and then when I'm not attached to what it means, it makes it more playful, right? Because if something shows up, then I'll be like, oh my God, that's really funny. You know, consciousness or the universe, whatever you want to call it, these invisible forces, it's really funny, you know, because it kind of, that was the message and that was the image. And then this was actually what I took from it. And, oh, like they, you know, they get kind of paired together. So yeah, I just feel like, you know what, that's all life is. That's all healing is, is a learning journey. And can we be aware to what is being shown to us? And it's largely being shown to us through our own consciousness. Let me take that question of whether you lump these phenomena in with invisible forces or not. Mm. And as I understood your response, it was, this is just consciousness at play. And if I don't get attached to things, I can just be interested and curious as to how these things manifest. Did I hear you right? Yeah, but okay, let me give you um, like a, a more tangible example, concrete example, um, using coherence, okay? Mm-hmm. Because it's, a, it's not sort of the big invisible forces. I mean, we, it, we, can, we can talk about like the, mm-hmm. the force field, if you want, between us, mm-hmm. right? Neuroscientists have, me- have measured, right, that like each of us as, as human beings, as individuals, we have an electromagnetic field. And it, 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 it goes in and it goes out, right? So it's, um, it's in a torus shape. Mm-hmm. And that the heart is the center uh, because what we can measure out, the, the electromagnetic field of the heart is much stronger than that of the brain. And so they've measured it out several feet and it's very similar, right? And people, they don't have to be like, mystics or, or intuitives to, to be able to have had the experience of like going into a room or meeting someone and just feeling like either, oh my God, you know, like light. I don't know. It, this is like, it feels light filled or the opposite, you know, whoa, there's something kind of heavy here going on. And that's the electromagnetic field. And so when, when we're in proximity to each other, we're very sensitized or we're in each other's fields. And so if I am in a very, very coherent state where all my, you know, my brain waves, my heart waves, my breath waves are very smooth and sign-like, 
then uh, I can help bring you into that, even if you're in an agitated state. So that's one example of how I use it with my patients. Like sometimes I begin a patient consult and they're completely in tears, they're agitated, they're scared, whatever it is. And if that's the case, I just invite, I say, you know what, can we just start with a centering practice? And I just guide them. It takes about five minutes. And then we do the visit in that coherent state and things just flow, right? So that's an example. And so I feel like it's not even like, I'm not healing you. We're creating this field together and I'm guiding you in this coherence practice. So we're, we're doing it together. And then we amplify the coherence that's in this field. And then things happen and flow. And we can think more clearly. We can feel more gratitude. The body actually heals as well, right? So that's kind of a concrete example. And so if we're talking about that as an invisible force, if you will, or even a, you know, a phenomenon that's, that might be considered um, more energetic or more psychic, whatever word you want to use, is that you know, the more we cultivate that, the more we become sensitized so that, oh, you know what? I might be able to sense in you where it is actually that you're feeling not coherent, you know? And so it, it is a, anyways, to me, it feels very, it feels very ordinary now because it's a part of our physical, um, bioelectric makeup of who we are. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner. What I still don't understand, actually, let me do this backward. I'm going to mm-hmm. offer you my interpretation yeah. of this. Um, as you know, I have become more and more interested in what I am calling uh, speculative cosmology or cosmological hypotheses. All right? And... I start from this place. I start from the universal and the very concrete. The universal is, there was a piece in the New York Times. This is, um, what is it, you know, late September 2023. There was a piece in the New York Times by two physicists um, who were saying, along the lines of your point about how Uh, 96% of the universe is either dark energy or dark matter. They were saying, guess what? The standard model of of physics and cosmology is breaking down. Our standard, our working hypothesis about how this works is all. Mm -hmm. And one example they gave was that they have discovered galaxies that existed before the Big Bang, all right? Mm. That existed before the Big Bang. And then they gave three or four other examples of of concrete physics examples of why the standard model was breaking down. And they said, we seem to be right at the edge of what Thomas Kuhn calls the scientific revolution. Mm. And 
we can keep trying to patch this, which we've been trying to do for some time, but it isn't working, all right? And so they linked the problem of galaxies that are older than the Big Bang uh, to a a famous uh, physics experiment um, in which light enters a little box Hmm. and it decides whether it's going to manifest as a wave or a particle. And if if the physicist is looking for a wave, it manifests as a wave. If he's looking for a particle, it manifests as a particle. Mm -hmm. But this great physicist developed what was called a delayed something rather experiment in which the light had decided whether it was going to manifest as a wave or a particle. And then they looked for the other one and it turned out to be the other one so that the hypothesis became, I'm not doing a very good job on the experiment, that our thought, the thought of the experimenter plays a fundamental role Mm. in the material in the energetic form, lighter particle, which shows up. And there were two articles, I may be confounding them, but one of them was a great physicist saying, the more we look at the cosmos, the more it looks like a giant thought. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, I hold the cosmic speculation that a whole set of phenomena that we don't understand now, including psi phenomena like uh, telepathy and Mm -hmm. psychokinesis and other things, as well as uh, past life experiences, the dead coming to us in present time, healing energies like key that we can't measure at this point, subtle energies. I hold the view that it is the hope, the prayer, the view, that in the new cosmology that is emerging in this moment of planetary crisis, Mm -hmm. it will encompass explanations or understandings better than explanations of a whole set Mm -hmm. of these phenomena that are very real experientially, Mm -hmm. but outside the realm of what we can measure. So I'll take it one step forward beyond that, which is when physicists look at the cosmos right now, they are astonished that it seems designed specifically to support life. And in order because that drives people like Stephen Hawking crazy, they developed the theory of the multiverse in order to account for that. They were, that enabled them to say, hey, the universe isn't designed to support life. There are zillions of universes. We just happen to live in one of the zillions that looked designed to support life. It's pure random accident, right? But we have no evidence for the multiverse. And the only universe we can observe seems specifically designed to support life, all right? So that's called the anthropic principle. And the anthropic principle appears in weak and strong variants, you know? And the weak variant says, yeah, it seems designed that way, kind of, so what? 
And the strong one says, yeah, it's designed that way. And if the universe is designed to support life, what does it tell us about the cosmos? And then moving to, you know, another source, a more mystical source, uh, uh, it, it's, it's suggestive that the, uni- that the laws of the universe must in some sense be based in love because the universe creates organic life and nothing is created by mistake. And since the universe seems designed to support life, it is at least suggestive that the universe is based on some cosmic principles of love. And we know in experiential reality that love is the greatest healer, or it's certainly among the greatest healers. So what I'm laying out here, I could do it in much greater detail, is a view that when I asked you how you held these phenomena in relationship to the invisible forces, I am laying out a speculative cosmology or a cosmological hypothesis that, in fact, these phenomena will turn out to be related to what you call the key field or we call the key Christ field because it will be evidence of the fact that that coherence heals. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, what do you think? Uh, well, I would say, um, I mean, there's a lot I don't, I don't know. Sure, uh, and I, I mean, obviously, either. we don't know as as a collective, right? A, a species, we don't know. And I do. I would just say that you know, I'm humbled, right, by collectively how how much we know actually, but also how little we know. And I, I would say, uh, and living in a universe or multiverse that's that big, trying to understand it from our vantage point, which is very small, um, is is pretty ambitious. Um, you know, what, and this this is part of the wisdom teachings, but it's also um, something that I've encountered a lot in healing circles, um, and and healing frameworks is actually understanding the universe is actually understanding ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So. Like that stuff, it can be really, really big and overwhelming and confusing for me. Um, I won't say it's that much easier going within Mm -hmm. myself to the inner universe, Mm -hmm. but it feels more doable. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, if I can really understand my nature and because I'm part of whatever is bigger, I can understand much more the nature of the universe or the multiverse if I can understand myself. So that's always where I start, is myself. Um, And I would also say, add to that though, that, you know, again, any of these frameworks, um, if we're purely, if they're they're mental, for me, where I go is, I, I start connecting in a very human way. Like love, oh, love is the greatest healing force, which is true. Like I understand, I've had these incredible experiences of, human relationship, relational love that mm-hmm. has been this catalyst for, for healing. Mm-hmm. But when we go into the, from my experience, when we go into the energetic and the consciousness places of wholeness, of healing, love is not an emotion. 
No, it's a way right. of seeing, as Rachel Raman puts it. It's a, well, I would say from what I experienced in the embodied consciousness, it's a way of seeing. So that's first the consciousness part, but it's also, it's a, it's a state of being, it's a state of oneness. And so when we are practicing and connecting to our bodies as the 99.99% empty space that we are, which is largely subtle energies, Right. If we go into the the atoms that we're made out of, atoms are 99.99% emptiness. And that's what I mean about like going into the inner universes and the true nature of who I am. We're largely 99.99% energy field. Mm -hmm. So energy field out there, energy field in here. So, but when, when I can experience myself as that, which there are all these different traditions that mm-hmm. teach this now, right? Including scientific ones mm-hmm. and clinical ones now. But th- there's a fluidity. You're just one with everything, you know? It's, it's, a, it's a bioelectric experience of it. It's not a conceptual one. And so there's an experience. So when, in 2017, when I surrendered into that field, it was that experience was everything was one. And I'm just consciousness observing me as one. So that experience of love is an unconditional kind of love, right? Whereas even the greatest loves human to human, I would say, are, you know, there, there's probably a little bit of condition attached to it unless someone is so, so uh, present and aware. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know. There's a lot of I don't know. And at the same time, the experience is that, yeah, that we're largely subtle energy. Everything is. And that we come from subtle energy. And then what is the framework and what are, what are the calculations and what really, if we're giving names and concepts to these things in the larger reality of the cosmos, I, I do not know. But I also, because of this playfulness we were talking about, is when I see the scientists coming up with these things that are matching with, you know, Qigong science or other traditions, I, it feels very playful to me. I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? Yeah, these people, they, they might not have known it conceptually, they knew it by direct experience for a very long time. And so, but going back to your thing about consciousness and thought and the, the slit lamp example that you were talking about is that thought, that information is the subtlest form of chi or energy. So it's part of this information field. So like if I come into coherence, what's also being exchanged is the information of the heart and the body and the mind, right? That's actually what's changing um, the energy or it's informing the energy and then the energy that changes is then kind of Mm. affecting everything. So it's really one continuum. One field. What I love about this exchange, I'll bring in another aspect of you that we haven't talked about. Uh, in, you went through a period of time, certainly after you got to uh, California, maybe before, where you were very interested in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so um, you studied what? I think Kierkegaard was one of the people you Yeah, he was into. one of my favorite ones. What? He was one of my favorites. Yeah, one of your yeah. favorites. But what I want to do is interpret what the exchange we just had 
in terms of a philosophical move. That's what, yes. yeah. Because here I, I put out, in other words, you would describe the invisible field, the invisible forces, the field, the, the coherence and all that. And I said, well, what about all these phenomena that we experience? And you said, well, I could lump them with the field, but, you know, I just, I'm playful with them. So then I put out this crazy cosmological speculation and your philosophical move, which was fascinated me, what first of all it was elegant, secondly it was kind, and third it was playful. And your philosophical move was to say, beautiful. And then you said, the theory that with our tiny intelligences can understand the cosmos is very uh, uncertain, to be kind. And... Um, but if you center yourself in your own being and your own experience, then you have a ground from which to reflect and uh, allowing that ground to be spacious, uh, you can simply hold these things. I, I, I'm not doing it justice. But so the philosophical move was to say it was a beautiful speculation. And then, oh, then you also said, we can hold that in a very mental way. I know you well enough to know that, quote, mental holding of things is not at the top of your hierarchy. So you hold it in this. Well, I, I have limited capacity. All right. Others are nothing, much more capable nothing of limited, that. <laughs> nothing limited about your capacity. No, So anyway, you, you go into this. The, the philosophical move is to go into the experiential field mm. and then just to, to hold it spaciously. And I loved it, but it's a, a good example in living time of the kinds of conversations mm. we have. So, oh, but I, I do want to comment, actually, yeah. um, because you were talking about... So, I mean, you know, the short answer to, to your reflection on that was just, I don't know. It's above my pay grade, you know? Like, <laughs> can I comment on that? I can, but right. am I just pulling stuff out of my, you know, like mm -hmm. my rear? Um, yeah, because it's, I'm kind of quoting people yeah. who know more than I do. But, but the, the other thing, you know, that I think has been really interesting for me based in terms of mm. a cosmological mm. um, framework is even this question about, oh, the universe or the multiverse, whatever, you know, you want to call it, sustaining life. Because just like, well, this is what I've been learning recently, is just as love, right, from a consciousness, a unitive consciousness experience and, a, uh, and framework, uh, but also from an energetic experience of that, is not an emotion, right? right? And so the definition of life, what we're calling life, is actually biological life. Mm -hmm. And life it, as energy simply moving mm -hmm. and transforming mm -hmm. and different energies merging and transforming and they're kind of, like that's that's the that's a different level but that's a definition of life and so when i think about like a cosmological framework about life it's a much bigger definition and experience of life than what i think as a human being 
of a, biological, a biological life. In other so words, life in, is a larger frame. Yeah, so in terms of the universe mm-hmm. or something beyond um, designed for life, mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, absolutely. Because mm-hmm. it's, an, it's an energetic mm-hmm. kind of life, mm-hmm. right? Movement as opposed mm-hmm. to something that's just flatline. Mm-hmm. And so again, that's what we can learn from the body, right? Something that's dead is, has a flat line. Mm-hmm. And so what's living are these waves. Mm-hmm. And so is the, ener- is the universe, does it appear to be wave-like? Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. And um, does thought, does consciousness appear to affect those waves versus particles? Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. And so, but how do we know that? Because of these smaller exper- uh, experiments that we can do, that we can reduce it down to something we can see. Mm-hmm. And so... It's in the same way of understanding our bodies, not as a deflection of any means, but truly, if I can understand my body and observe it and, um, and experience it, I can much more readily observe and experience what the, what the cosmos probably mm-hmm. is. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that. No, that's, that. that's good. Yeah. Um, that's a nice way to close that parenthesis of cosmological speculation. Tell us about your present uh, Qigong teacher and tell us about the book that you edited and um, helped helped bring into being. What's the title? What's his name? Where can people find Mm. it? And who is he? And why does he draw you so deeply? Um... Yeah, so first I, uh, I just want to say that my, uh, my entry to Qigong was a, um, a teacher named Ming Tong Gu, and I still practice with a lot of his recordings as well. Um, and we still have a, you know, a friendship and, a, and also a teacher-student relationship. Um, and I studied really intensely with him for, I don't know, maybe seven years or so. Um, and then, and it was this lineage called Zinin Qigong, which means wisdom ability Qigong. Um, and then, um, speaking of, you know, dreams and kind of information was I had a dream, um, three years ago that the grandmaster, the founder of this lineage, who's still alive, who I've, I've never met, um, I've only seen a few recordings of him. Uh, but uh, Dr. Pong was his name, and or is his name, and he was Western and Eastern trained in terms of medicine, studied a lot of different, uh, under a lot of different grandmasters, and he synthesized, actually brought in a lot of modern science into uh, Qigong and, and distilled it down actually kind of into the essential components, the essence, because um, Qigong has many different lineages and many, many different forms. And he was like, okay, how do we kind of unify things into a simpler way that is much more easily disseminated in today's modern and more technological uh, age? So that was resonant for me. But three years ago, Dr. Pong, the founder, appeared to me in a dream. And um, he, it, we, we were in a, the top floor, we were in the ICU uh, of, uh, actually the CCU, it was the cardiac care unit, so it had to do with the heart. Uh, top floor of a hospital, and it, the whole thing was empty, though. I was standing in front of one of those big windows, you know, in the, the ICU, CCU kinds of rooms, and, but everything was empty, and it was just him standing there, and he didn't say anything. We didn't exchange anything, and that was it. It was more like a vision, 
And I remember thinking, oh, you know, again, like, oh, what does that mean? And, you know, I had some, you know, analyses of it, but I kind of just tucked it away. Um, And then over time, it kind of emerged for me, like I just kind of kept getting different messages and experiences in my life where I was like, oh, actually, I need to empty. Like, it's about emptiness. I need to forget, actually, everything that I've learned and also empty my heart. I'm in this CCU, you know, cardiac care unit. And so that was what I kind of came to take from it, not so much from an analytical, but just kind of an experiential uh, message. And I was um, was looking at some of Dr. Pong's um, videos on YouTube, which there aren't that many. And then Teacher Wei, Teacher Wei Chi Fang, um, who's his current teacher, um, had a couple of videos that came up. And so I played a couple of the meditations, didn't resonate at all for me. I was like, whoa, what is this? And same lineage, same grandmaster, you know, uh, really different. And speaking of vibrations and just wave forms of people, and I would, the way I would characterize like Master Ming Tong, the first teacher, was very um, colors of the rainbow, right? He's like orange, red, and yellow. And then Teacher Wei felt very blue, purple, like just really different manifestations of the same teaching of the same lineage. And the purple blue did not resonate with me. Um, But somehow over the next few months, I, I don't even actually remember how, but I ended up just doing a trial month, you know, uh, just one module and it's, uh, he's based in China. So it was, it was remote. And uh, I just realized like, whoa, it was all about emptying and about letting go of attachments and also practicing in a community and how to cultivate this collective field and the field as a conscious conscious field as opposed to a energy field. And I was like, well, I have something to learn. So I started with him and then I kind of have continued uh, and, and still um, uh, involved in, you know, I'm a teacher and an organizer and a healer in his community. Um, and I'm now actually coaching um, the teachers and the healers who are in the community. So it's been a, a real growth opportunity for me. And the book, um, which just uh, we just uh, launched in um, July, this past summer, July 2023, um, is called Mingjue Awakening, M-I-N-G-J-U-E Awakening. And Mingjue means uh, pure consciousness. So... It's about, yeah, just kind of this continual process of us awakening to our wholeness. And it's about healing. It's about managing our energy, um, but supported by this collective field. And then um, so that when we're practicing Qigong from this Mingjie, this pure consciousness um, awareness and observation, it's like we're practicing for this field and the field practicing through us. That's kind of the simplest way I can explain it. Um, but a lot of the teachings are about Wu Wei, are about this effortless action, effortless doing, effortless healing, um, which is what I'm currently really writing about as well, um, is it feels very counterproductive and almost irrational like in terms of healing. For example, one of the, the, um, one of the first things I learned about pure consciousness, collective field 
Qigong healing is that you need to let go of your attachments to three things when you're, you know, when you're healing, either yourself or another person. You let go of the person, even if it's yourself. You let go of the attachment to the condition, the health challenge. You let go of your attachment to the outcome. Say again, the three. You let go of the person the that person, needs the healing. Right. You let go of the, the health condition. condition. Yeah. You let go of your of attachment outcome. to mm. the outcome. And I remember I was like, on some weird level, deep level, I knew it was the truth. But then, you know, my thinking mind was like, what else is there? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's why we heal. You know, like that's what we do for other people. That's why we heal ourselves. What else is there? And it, it's really about having that intention, that thought that you were talking about that actually transforms, but planting it there almost like a seed and then just allowing it to do what it needs to do. Because when we are very fixated on the goal or the person or the, um, the condition, we can actually become our own obstruction to the healing that we want to happen, right? So it's about... Um, so when we're attached, when we're fixated on, on any of those things, even if it's well-meaning, the teaching is that we, we come out of coherence, right? So we, we actually constrict that energy. We, we, the, the, instead of the smooth sine waves, we, we become a little bit more, right? We, we become, because the attachments are actually associated with fear and resistance and frustration, not love. So if we can practice coherence, but then we're supported by the coherence of this collective field that is all practicing coherence, we can stay coherent much more readily. And then whoever needs healing, including ourselves, we're just in this coherent field. So then the healing happens much more um, as a side effect, but also potentially much more rapidly. And I've witnessed that also firsthand, you know, with myself, but also in, in other participants as well. Mm. You've mentioned that you have an acupuncturist. I know he's been important to you. We haven't talked about that facet of Mm -hmm. your healing work. Could you say something about him and why he is important to you? Yeah, so um, his name is um, Bob Levine, Robert Levine. And um, he was, when I was at my real low, low, the first time around when I was housebound, he was the first alternative practitioner, alternative meaning just outside of conventional Western medicine that I had sought out really out of desperation. Um, And he was the mentor to, he's been mentored many, many very gifted acupuncturists and healers. Um, But at the time he was a mentor to one of my very closest friends. And this friend was the one who um, connected me with Bob. And so I had seen Bob every week or every other week um, for, you know, the first year and then kind of spaced it out. But I was seeing him regularly for a few years. And he got me to the place uh, where I was no longer housebound, um, which was when I began to slowly travel. Um, you know, I was working at a medical clinic just like two half days a week. So I wasn't fully housebound. I was largely housebound, right, but very limited and I worked in a clinic um, two half days a week near my house. Um, so I was maintaining my Western medicine, but then I was learning from him about holistic frameworks of understanding health. 
Um, and it dovetailed really beautifully with the ecological paradigm of health as well, right, in terms of environmental health. But again, our bodies as a, a microcosm of this bigger cosm of the planet and then a bigger cosm, right, a macrocosm of the, of the universe. And um, so Bob was that, that mentor for me. And I learned a tremendous amount, you know, and I, I, he was actually the primary healer in my memoir, Brave New Medicine. Um, but he was also the one who introduced me, of course, because of traditional Chinese medicine to qi um, and to qigong. And he had, he had actually encouraged me many times um, to uh, consider qigong as a bridge between the sessions. Um, but, you know, I, as I alluded to earlier, I was very skeptical. I had a lot of fear. I didn't know anything about Qigong. And in fact, my evangelical upbringing had kind of talked about all the, the potential dangers of working with energy and like, you know, the cultishness of things. And so I had a lot of hesitation. I didn't pursue it then. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner. But, and then it was later on another mentor when I was ready, had mentioned, it was my midwife, my former midwife, Yeshi Newman, who had studied with Master Ming Tong, the first Qigong teacher. And she, I saw her and she looked great. And I was like, What's, what are you doing? She said, I've gotten into Qigong. So she was the one who brought me, but it was uh, to the first workshop that I attended. And then, uh, but Bob Levine, this acupuncturist, was the one who had planted that seed. And... Um, and then, you know, when I got to a certain point in my healing, I actually didn't see Bob for many years. And um, back in 2017, the second health crisis, I went back and saw him um, for a short period of time, not long. Um, but I've recently reconnected with him. And again, that was more of an intuition. And then what I, when I saw him again this time, it's only been about... Um, probably about six, six or eight months, something like that. Uh, but once a month, I see him. He's semi-retired. And, uh, you know, he, when I saw him the first time, he said, oh, you know, you're here not because I'm treating you. He said, yeah, I'm going to give you some treatments and stuff. And he said, but we're here to learn together. We're learning something together that we need to, we need to do. And so it's been a very different relationship with him. And, and because of where I am now, right, in terms of my framework of how life works and being much more open and uh, curious about these invisible fields and forces, um, he has revealed things to me that are, are quite astounding that I did not know you could get from examining the pulse. Um, and then I realized, oh, he's crafted this over his lifetime of healing work, taking his own intuitions. And he, he has pulses, like ancestral pulses, and he feels past life pulses, like things that I didn't actually know were possible. Um, and again, even with that, you know, kind of throwing it into this area of like extrasensory realms, if you, if you will, Sometimes I don't know what to make of it, um, but I just kind of keep an open mind. I just observe. And I also recognize that, you know, a lot of this information that's floating around in these invisible 
fields, but it's coming through him. It's coming through his own unique framework. And then he's interpreting it this way. So I just observe it. And then sometimes I find, you know, surprising or serendipitous correlations. And then other times, I don't know. Um, But it's been a really beautiful relationship where I also feel like I can give back. I feel like I'm also somehow, you know, it's like when you have a mentor and a mentee, but the the mentee also, it's not like a one way, it's a a two way. And I mean, I know that we've had that in our our friendship as well. Um, But I I feel that with him, and it feels like a real gift um, where, yeah, we're just kind of, sharing um, and dancing and playing um, and, and, you know, learning, learning about what healing is. I mentioned that we drove out together to see our friend Rachel Naomi Remen, who's the medical director of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program and <clears throat> with whom I've worked for the last 40 years. You also trained with Rachel. What, what, have you learned from your uh, time with and Mm. your friendship with as well as your uh, explorations with Rachel? You know, it's um, Rachel, actually you and Rachel became mentors to me at the same time, Mm. but through totally different paths, Mm. right? So with you, it was the collaborative on health and the environment. Mm. And through Rachel, it was actually, um, it was a workshop that she was giving, you know, for doctors. Um, I think it was on burnout. I've attended a few of her workshops, weekend workshops. It might have been on burnout. I don't remember what it was about. It doesn't matter. It was about the heart of healing. And, And then shortly after that, she invited me to be in her living room group, which meets, you know, which would meet once a month in her living room. And... At the time, I didn't even know you guys were affiliated with each other, maybe much less like like very close collaborators and friends. So it was kind of funny to 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 learn that you know about that convergence um, because it happened at the same time. Um, and I will say, you know, the the thing that sh- that really opened for me uh, with her as a as a doctor and a professional and uh, just in terms of a learning, a teaching was really about how do we bring the heart into medicine, right? Not, not so much even about healing. It was like, how do we bring it into the medical system? And how do we be, how do we keep our hearts open? You know, when everything kind of around us is wanting to kind of close it down um, and we shut off our emotions, we shut off our grief, we, you know, move on and become kind of uh, numb and so that was a really big opening for me. Um, but the other thing actually that came to me in this visit a couple of weeks ago with the two of you together, because I've seen, I've been with you guys in group settings, but even there, not so much. Um, it's been very separate. And here I was two weeks ago with this incredible opportunity to be with just you two in the living room, right? And um, and it dawned on me actually after I left that, you know, you mentioned at the, at the uh, onset that you were an introvert. I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert too. <laughs> I live with 
with a, a very extroverted um, life partner. And, uh, but I'm introverted. And what I remember very distinctly was that you guys as mentors, so not so much as teachers, but as mentors of like, how do you live life? I was watching you guys, like, how do you do this from a place that is actually deeply interior and quiet, actually quiet. And yet there are these like incredible, right, communities and, um, yeah, and, and just the, the impact that you, you had on me and so many others. So I would just watch how, how does she do this? You know, how is, how is she being in the doing? Um, because I, I would say up until that point, really anybody else that I had sort of as an example, you know, like Paul Farmer, Dr., the late Paul Farmer, you know, um, uh, incredible right, humanitarian and international aid doctor, um, you know, I, I would always say like, oh, he's the doctor that I want to be when I grow up. I mean, I still say that, you know, now. Um, and, you know, I ha- also had the privilege of him being a mentor and a teacher and a friend. And, but he's incredibly, incredibly extroverted. So, but I would, usually those were the people, right, that were like the mentors for my life and I do feel like when I had the real uh, health, you know, when I had the 10-year journey and learning to come into my wholeness, part of that was accepting who I was and then recognizing like, oh, I actually need to be true to who I am. Instead of trying to be like somebody else and operate like somebody else in the world, in this particular culture, which is very extroverted and very, um, shall we say, like, you know, sunny. We're like a sun-worshipping and my nature was much more lunar, you know, and much more yin, fluid, dark, you know. Um, and I didn't know how to do that. So to have you two come into my life at that time, you know, of just emerging into the world and how do I be a citizen in the world? How do I be a doctor and a healer in the world? Uh, was a real gift just in terms of your, your beings, um, one of the things that's just been true for us is uh, I, I'm not going to deflect that you call me a mentor. I will take it in. Uh, that's but, true. I but, that. And I understand it's true for you. Uh, <laughs> but also uh, you have to take in that you have been a mentor for me. And in fact, it's very precious to me when the mentor-mentor-mentor-mentee relationship moves back and forth, that there is a dance between Mm -hmm. what we learn from each other. And um, I always try to do that with people when I have the chance. I mean, even in the Cancer Help Program is a perfect example. Uh, The Cancer Help Program exists as what it is because we've been taught by all the people Mm -hmm. who've come through. So they come to us for a certain teaching, and but we receive their teaching, and that in turn forms it. So it's uh, whether or not the universe is a giant thought. The cancer help program is definitely, a, a, you know, a kind of a 
But you mentioned uh, your extraordinary life partner, who I mentioned before, David Hochschild, who I actually knew before I knew you. And uh, I knew his father, Adam Hochschild, when we were both at Harvard. And um, I uh, haven't uh, gotten to know uh, David's mother, Arlie, who's uh, famous also in her own right. So David is the chair of the California Energy Commission and has been entrusted by two governors uh, with uh, billions of dollars of investment in a solar uh, energy future. And so um, this isn't the first time we've mentioned this, that you and David together, he's working in the outer world of energy, healing energy for the planet Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, electrifying the grid and California being a model for the rest of the country. So David is right at the epicenter of that. And you are in a much more lunar way at the epicenter of uh, a certain field of, um, of inner healing. Now, not only inner, but healing uh, of uh, invisible fields, fields mm-hmm. that don't get the same recognition as the extroverted fields. Um, but so you married into this extraordinary family where both Adam Hochschild as a historian and Arlie Hochschild as a sociologist um, and their son David uh, as a, a great energy worker um, What's it been like to have a life partner and to marry into this extraordinary family and to bring your own remarkable family, which has settled near you here in Berkeley? So you have these two families surrounded by, I will say, hundreds of close friends. So how do you as an introvert (laughs) navigate this exuberance Mm -hmm of yeah. uh, of uh, extroversion. It's, well, I'll say, um, well, it's, um, I, you know, it's been, we've been married now 20 years, so I've had 20 years of, um, you know, uh, some trial and error, some, <laughs> some more graceful periods and some really trying periods. Um, you know, particularly when my health was very brittle um, the first time around, it was challenging. Uh, also, we were, you know, we were young parent. We were new parents. Um, we didn't, you know, it was it was the full living catastrophe, right? Like all of the pressures uh, converging, kind of in, in, at, into one, and my health. So, uh, so many unknowns. Um, but letting go of a lot of attachments to kind of the way that we imagined life to be, you know, as a family, as a young family. Um, yeah, it wasn't pretty. Um, it was messy. Uh, but there, we were always, yeah, reaching out to the, the field of people, you know, besides each other. Like if we weren't, if we weren't connecting super well, uh, we had this other field around us that we felt like we could really... Um, uh, reach out to and receive support from. So that's that's pure grace and you know gratitude for that. Um, you know it's so now right now David and I can say like oh yeah oh, okay we 
we're, we're both about energy. You know, even before the work with the subtler energy, like the chi energy and the invisible forces, um, even functional medicine, if you really go down into the root causes of chronic conditions, the chronic inflammatory conditions is about energy efficiency and, you know, like inflammation actually is a very energy intensive process, right? So, but, but then other places where you need energy and want energy for healing, it's deficient. So it's, it's about energy balance. It's about um, energy efficiency, energy storage. Um, so we began to realize like, oh my God, we're kind of doing the same thing, you know? And then now I'm like, oh my God, it's not just, you know, individuals and people and internal energy, but it's, and then he's doing this. Now it's like the subtle energies. And like that yoga class example I gave you, it's like, oh my God, you know, we can really transform the, the form, right? The physical manifestations and the way the physical planet uses energies by cultivating this invisible energy field. That's how I see it. And so that they're really complementary. And, but yeah, so it's not so much, I would say the extroverted kind of, you know, energy that he's in versus mine is quieter and subtler. It's more that, that, that actually is like a, there's a hard infrastructure that people can see. Um, so it's exciting. There's a certain momentum and, I think it's really important, right, to do that. Do I have that kind of energy, you know, to, to do something like that? I don't. And so I'm grateful for people who do, you know, and similar to like your work in Commonweal, it's like these manifestations of things, um, of systems, of structures uh, is important. It's important. Um, and how do we actually stay in flow? I think that's the hard part. It's not about whether we build or not. It's can we continually stay in flow and can we let go of things when they're no longer serving us? So in that sense, I feel like working with the subtle energies is much easier. And so we had a joke um, when, you know, his agency received a lot more funding um, from a budget surplus. And he, he said something like, oh, you know, um, maybe we can we can start a subtle energies division <laughs> you can head it up and I you know and I just looked at him and I said oh yeah we don't need we don't need a division <laughs> oh like, we don't need it and so there that, that was kind of the, the running joke for a while um but you know it, it's easy now to kind of say oh oh wow this is a perfect marriage you know it's it's, it's beautiful and it's very complimentary but it's taken 20 kind of years and some of it slogging to, to arrive here and I will say, you know, my fa our two families were such different backgrounds because, right, mine was evangelical, much more conservative in Texas, um, Chinese, uh, and my parents were, were immigrants, so I'm first-generation American-born. And then David is, um, you know, Bay Area, San Francisco-raised. While we were doing, you know, pro-life rallies, they were marching in, you know, um, in the freedom of choice, but also gay pride. I mean, it was completely different cultures coming together. And, um, and somehow it, it worked. Um, and it has worked really beautifully. Um, I think what was challenging for me marrying into this family, and David has one brother who's, uh, you know, very gifted in teaching, working with kids with learning disabilities, so it was like marrying into this family when I wasn't feeling well and struggling just to even do activities of daily living. 
for so long, trying to take care of my kids, trying to, you know, just make do while they're kind of out there changing the world uh, was something that I really had to reconcile with because it's, um, it's another way of feeling kind of invisible, uh, which is funny, right? Because now I, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> extolling the invisible forces, but there's a kind of invisibility of yourself. Like if you can't see yourself, but you also feel like others can't see you, right? It's that thought, it's that intention that somehow enlivens us. And I was feeling overshadowed, even though they were doing nothing. But just by them being who they were, and shining and, you know, making big change and all that, it was very hard for me. So it was really about me. I had to do a lot of inner work around that and it had nothing to do with them. It was about me, you know, seeing myself as that. So it was just about how do I be present? How do I just focus on the, on what's right in front of me? How do I, you know, connect with myself now? And then again, kind of the rest of it, you know, happens then if we're open, right, to life. Life sort of happens. Life shows us the path. And, you know, when we got married, I was very much on this path, kind of like, you know, Paul Farmer. I was like a public health doctor at the county hospital in San Francisco. I also worked at a clinic in the Tenderloin, you know, with refugees and homeless patients and was doing international aid work in rural China. And I just was like, oh, this is my, this is my calling. And, um, and so when I got really sick and it took me down this other path, originally my, my thought was I'm just going to get better and then I'm going to go back to being a public health doctor because that's actually what I want to do. And anytime I went that way, I just kept getting resistance. And that's what I mean about kind of being open and living in flow and what is life showing us and paying attention because, you know, the more resistance I had, the more I would kind of not be balanced in my body. So life kind of just kept pushing me into these other, not pushing, guiding me, flowing me into these other areas of healing that I never would have, you know, never could have imagined. And writing. I mean, I, I you know, I remember being so happy of placing out of AP English because I didn't have to write anymore after high school. And so, uh, so you know, all of this is kind of a complete, surprise. And, and I do remember a moment when I was, so I'm really involved uh, also with a global distributed all-volunteer organization called Service Space, um, which you connected me to. Um, and, um, and I remember uh, when I was giving my first kind of workshop, it was around Qigong, and um, there were several hundred people participating in this two-week challenge. And I was you know, I was facilitating the first um, opening session and, you know, it was freely offered and the, the whole thing was a pop-up team, right? Or a volunteer team. And it was an incredible experience for me. And I just had that knowing like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, this is, this is the healthcare or the medicine or the healing that's being freely offered to the community, you know, in a global way that was manifested in a way that was totally different than how I pictured it before of doing global health. Um, so, and just kind of laughing at it and just saying, you know, I never could have imagined that because one of my limitations before was public speaking, was attention of any kind was paralyzing for me. 
So to then suddenly find myself in front of hundreds of people and doing this, I just thought, wow, you know, life is, is really funny. And can we open ourselves to receive, to receive not just appreciation from other people, but to truly receive what life is offering us and the opportunities? And can we go beyond what limits us to step into that? You've just mentioned service space and our friend and colleague Nipun Mehta, who is the founder of service space, and many people regard him as a modern Gandhi, uh, and the work he does is extraordinary. And at some level, you found a, a real community there um, with other beloved friends of ours. Could you say just a little bit about, a little more about what service space is and what it means in your life, what what it has offered you? Um, so service space is, um, I think it's, it's kind of similar to Commonweal in the sense that it's hard to describe. Mm. Um, and it's even harder to describe than Commonweal because there's no physical place, right? It's virtual. It's completely global, virtual, always has been, even though um, similar to Healing Circles, um, and Rachel Remen's work, there are communities spread throughout the world that actually meet in person, right? Um, but service space, I would just say, is they, they describe themselves more as an ecosystem rather than even a community, and certainly not an organization. There's no, it's fully distributed. So, um, and entirely volunteer. Entirely volunteer. And finding freedom in the volunteers and because we're completely outside of any market system, right? So if people want to donate money, like Nipun and you know all of us others, because we're we, we understand the, the service based way, we'll ask, well, oh, you know what, thank you. Um, could you donate some time or some skills? Um, because it's really about the interaction being the true nourishment, being the true um, yeah, I can't remember what they call it, but the it's not money, right? It's not about, um, it's about, yeah, being nourished in the heart. So um, the, then there are multiple initiatives. Um, the one that I'm uh, currently one of the co-anchors for is the Awaken Calls, um, which is the podcast series. And we also do workshops. Um, and... Uh, but again, it's the way I describe it is actually, I use the term pop-up, pop-up teams, because like, for example, the Qigong, um, challenge that we did, uh, you know, we can just kind of put it out there and then call for volunteers and people show up and they volunteer whatever they can. So we're working with a very fluid, um, set of volunteers, which also has its challenges. For, for the core anchors, it can be challenging because there's so much movement. And at the same time, it's a practice in letting go of attachment. So it's like, oh, we might have a vision of something and it's helpful to have a structure, which because Nipun is a, he's a coding wizard, right? His tech is his, is his manifestation, one of them, one of his gifts. And so he will code and craft these containers online that help to deepen relationships in a way that is fascinating. That's, that's actually live. It's in real time. He'll be, he'll be watching how people in a particular 
challenge or maybe on a, on a podcast series, on a Q&A. He'll be watching how people use technologies and interface with it and how can they learn from each other. So it's a really, it's a collective learning um, platform uh, and ecosystem. So it's really about many to many um, as opposed to like one teacher or several teachers and lots of people. So we're always learning from each other. So it is kind of a co-mentoring uh, platform. And yeah, so it feels very dynamic. And then for me, um, beautiful friendships, like soul friendships with people that I, you know, some of them I haven't even met in person. And then, um, but really this exercise in letting go of attachments so, yeah, so there's a fluidity and I, I don't really know what will come next. Um, all I know is that I'm somehow involved. Mm. You had a great tragedy in your life in Texas um, where you were engaged to an extraordinary man named Kurt, who was um, a fellow physician in um, a residency program and he died. Um, could you tell us about Kurt and um, what has your love for him and his death meant in your life? Mm. Yeah, so I mean, it's a it's a fortuitous time actually to be talking about him because it's his, his birthday. His birthday was two days ago. Yeah, and mm. my birthday is today, mm-hmm. and so we used to happy birthday. Thank you. So yeah, he's felt very close, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I haven't actually, you know, had tears about him for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't like attention either. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't like attention and I had some issues with it. And neither of us liked our birthdays for that reason. And so the funny thing is, is, you know, our birthdays being two days apart, we would always celebrate non-birthdays on the day between. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so but he's been very present for me this week. And... Um, he, we were together for six years. Um, I will say, yeah, he was the first love of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been blessed uh, somehow in my life to have multiple mm-hmm. loves of my life, mm-hmm. you know, including people that I'm not partners with, just mm-hmm. having soul friendships mm-hmm. with. And so, uh, yeah, and he, we went through a lot. Uh, it wasn't just his death, but he... We faced a lot of life-threatening um, challenges. Um, his his mental health, his physical health. He had an open heart surgery when we were engaged. Uh, that was n- not that any heart surgery is small, but that one was really not small. Um, so there was considerable, you know, risk to the surgery itself. Even though he was young and very fit, but there was also a lot of questions about what would happen after the surgery. What would his quality of life be? And so we dealt with a lot um, in our very young, you know, uh, in our 20s. And and then he, when I was a second year resident, um, he died in a car accident. And so it was, but I was also in residency. And, you know, most people, because they don't really know what to do with grief, but particularly like something that, kind of sudden and uh, tragic that, um, you know, the, the kind of the general advice or wisdom that I got was, well, just, you know, grieve him, but then go back to work. Like just normalize your life as much as possible. 
So I grieved him really hard for a week, you know, and then he had his memorial service and then I went back to my residency. And, you know, in residency training at that time in particular, like it's a, it's a little bit different now. It's still really rigorous now, but people understand like, oh, like residents are human beings and it shouldn't be like military boot camp, that kind of thing. Back then, having a week off, I, I truly felt grateful that everybody was covering for me. So when I went back to work a week later, I felt not just grateful, but like, uh, like oh, this is my duty. I gotta, I'm gonna finish this off. So I finished residency, and then, um, and then I, after that, I had no reason to stay in Texas. Uh, so I came out to to the Bay Area after that, and it was a lot of processing. Um, first, his death. Um, which left me with a lot of questions because I had all these questions and fears from my evangelical upbringing. And Kurt had been raised Catholic and we both had those fears. Like, what the hell happens after you die? And like, do we have to decide now? And wait, we can't decide. We can't believe something that we don't believe. So that we both had a lot of fear around that. Um, and then he died. And so suddenly I was left with all these questions about, well, where is he? And is he really, you know, is he suffering? You know, and... Uh, so that was that was a lot to kind of be with. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then when I met David, my husband, uh, it was only a couple of years after Kurt died. And it was it felt so raw. I was, the last thing I was looking for was a relationship. And um, but it was just one of those things like Kurt's parents came to visit San Francisco David came to meet them, and I don't know, it just fit together. Mm. And David was not afraid of my grief. He wasn't afraid of my processing. And um, he was just, he's, I mean, you know him. He's one of the largest hearted people that, you know, that I, I knew then and that I know now. And so he embraced it all. So I thought, okay, even though this feels like I'll probably be processing this for the rest of my life. So if here's a, a, you know, a man who loves me and, and I love him, we might as well, you know, kind of thing, give it a go. So, so David and Kurt, I don't know, they were very much woven in together at the beginning. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner. And then, you know, then for a long time, I, I kind of forgot. I mean, not forgot, but the grief wasn't with me, right, of, of Kurt. And I was very much focused on my life and trying to heal. And then um, I would say, yeah, kind of recently, in the last couple of years, he has resurfaced like much more present. Um, but I think it's because I think he's always been there um, in this invisible field, uh, but I, I wasn't really able to receive it or to fully understand um, and to be actually awakened to these invisible forces as this intimate, right, kind of relationship. So he's, yeah, he's been a lot more present. And what I've, what I've learned actually on my journey, and again, this is just kind of where I am, is that because, right, in the realm of consciousness and energy, things don't die, right? There might be a biological death. That's what we're talking about, like bio, the biological definition of life. But conscious information and energy as just always um, continuing, like continuing their vibration and 
their transformation, um, he feels very alive to me in that way. And so there's relation, there's actually been healing in my relationship with him that I didn't really know needed to happen until the last few years. And so, so much of the focus has been on like his death, his death and like grieving and healing that. And that I didn't even realize like there was some significant trauma on my part of all the other experiences that we experienced together, you know, that I was always worried about him and I was, oh, oh my God, what's, you know, and then something actually then did happen, right, where he died. But so many of these other crises and challenges during the time that I was in, we, that he and I were both in medical school and residency. So I had not actually dealt with any of that and I didn't know it was there. Uh, but it was Kurt kind of in this subtle manifestation of our relationship that was the teacher for me, you know? And then I realized, oh, wow, actually relationships continue, you know, and we can continue to heal uh, together and, and individually even after the person dies. It's harder because it's subtle, right? It's much easier, well, or I don't, I don't know, it depends on how you look at it, right? Sometimes it's harder in the form because there's so much entanglement and attachment and, ah, and all this stuff. But then, um, yeah, so it's been uh, a powerful relationship for me and very he, alive. He comes to you in dreams sometimes. He's come to me in dreams. And again, I, I, again that I don't know if he's coming or if my mm -hmm. consciousness is somehow mm -hmm. right, manifesting him in a way that I can relate to. Um, and yeah, and, you know, I don't, you know, I personally, I don't see spirits and, and things like that. Um, but I can, it's more of a direct knowing. It's like, I, I, I know, like I know he's present in certain times and spaces. And so, yeah, it feels very alive. One of the journeys that you and I took together fairly early in this 12-year period where we've been walking into this field, whatever we call it, was uh, I had become interested in Enneagram, which is a, a character study structure of nine different points around a circle. And uh, so that was one of the fairly rare experiences where I had the lead in, in, in exploration. That's not true. That is <laughs> no, not, that's true, not true. Right? But in any case, um, you had some resistance to it because you didn't like to pit button, what it, you know, pigeonhole people. But it became a structure that um, we both used and continue to use at some level, just as a way of understanding ourselves and other people. Um, in, with the benefit of hindsight, <laughs> uh, I know it's, it's not high on your list of, of favorite hits, but how do you hold Enneagram now? I love Enneagram. <laughs> I love Enneagram. I think it's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't have any, I don't have issues with the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. I am very aware, as with any system, mm -hmm. you know, Qigong included, right? Mm -hmm. Like one of the, the foundational teachings is do not get attached to the method mm -hmm. or 
the teachings. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as what they're pointing to, as what they're cultivating, this mm-hmm. inner state, right? Mm-hmm. The state of being. And so it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And with Enneagram, which I dove into quite deeply, you mm-hmm. know, with you, mm-hmm. right? And and then and then you just took it like to this whole other level. But the reason I stopped was because I could see my, I could feel my own resistances because I was getting attached to, you know, yeah, you know what? Could I sense into like what you know someone's patterns were? I could, but if I and my own patterns, yes, I could. But if I started saying like. Because the language of the Enneagram is often like, oh, I'm a one wing two, or oh, I'm a, you know, six subtype, whatever. And there was an identification with it, which is when it becomes an attachment. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a limitation. Mm -hmm. And so then I started seeing like, oh, God, like, you know, okay, it's one thing to help me understand myself and other people and how to be and but it's about understanding myself so I can overcome what Mm -hmm. what limits me as opposed to something that kind of protects me and mm-hmm. keeps me right in my place. So that that was when I began to kind of, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, like I'm starting to get attached to the framework and I'm starting to just see people as like numbers and like, you know, and, and personalities. And that's like, that's not the point. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, going deeper was that I realized like, oh, well, uh, you know, the original, or at least more of the ancient, what we understand about Enneagram in the, in the more ancient origins is it wasn't just a kind of a, a mental framework and a personality. And even if you go into the, the spiritual framework, there was also embodiment in dance and there was also music. So it was a much more mind, body, spirit, coherence, mm-hmm. full, right? Full body, mind, heart experience as opposed to just the mental frameworks, even if it was a spiritual framework, which is actually what happened in the West. And so it made me appreciate it more. And so, you know, there were there were sayings about, I, I don't remember, you would know, but someone who said, oh, if, if you go into the desert, I could be, I could this totally be distorting this. Gurdjieff. Did Gurdjieff say that if you go into the desert, all you need is the Enneagram? That if you, if you were in the desert... And you drew the circle of the oh. Enneagram with its internal arrows uh-huh. around the nine points yeah. in the sand that you could you could know all there was to know from that symbol. Yes. And so <laughs> to me, that's really powerful. Um, but understanding also that the framework that he was referencing also Im- involved the embodiment and Absolutely. the heart piece, right? So... I think, you know, and, you know, I could say the same thing about Qigong. But again, what we tend to do as just in terms of our analytical minds and our our human smaller minds is to just get attached to that framework. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, that's kind of when I could see that. And when I see and you know this because you've you know, we've been friends for so long. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in a lot of the other arenas or areas that I've seen, like I see it with functional medicine. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like, oh, we can get totally attached to the framework. And um, how do we step back and look at the bigger picture, too, and begin to dance with the information that we have? Mm-hmm. So um, I do that with any framework. And so it's not, it's, it's not like, it's not downputting Enneagram. I, I still use it and I love it, you know, because it helps, particularly when I have challenges 
um, you know, in a, in a relationship, I can use it to to feel into my own patterns, like what pattern needs to kind of unravel. Um, but oh, help me understand the other person. Like, what is that other person like kind of doing? And then it just allows me to have more distance. Like, oh, I can just observe that person's patterns um, instead of me labeling the person with a number. So, as you know, I'm an Enneagram 5, which is the observer, and you describe yourself as an Enneagram 1, which is described as the perfectionist in in the literature. How do you hold, uh, and of course we're all all points on the Enneagram, and... um, and I agree with you, there are many very superficial aspects of it. For me personally, having studied depth psychologies for uh, 60 years, um, I've found Enneagram to be the most, um, how can I say this, that it yields the most useful information about myself and others of all the systems that I've looked at, all of which Freud, Jung, um, Asajoli, uh, you know, uh, all the others. But the lineage that um, uh, goes from Oscar Chazo, who developed the Enneagram of Personality, to Claudio Naranjo, who taught it in Berkeley, and then current schools all evolved from that, basically. And... Um, and particularly Beatrice Chestnut's book, The Complete Enneagram, has turned out to be particularly useful to me. But the question I'm really coming to is, in your own understanding of yourself, what, if anything, does uh, identifying yourself as coming from an Enneagram one place tell you about yourself? Um, well, firstly, what was interesting to me was that I was, that I, I don't don't even like to say that I'm a one, that I have one strong one pattern. Um, I've only taken two Enneagram tests and I tested both as five, right? And I know that there's a one subtype that looks Looks kind of like a five, five. Mm -hmm. but I knew, and even, even in our relationship, I knew, I was just like, oh, it's very clear. Like, no, I'm not a five, or I don't have mm-hmm. the strong, five is not the foundational pattern for me. Um, Though curiously, five is the Buddha point, right? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So I think I have a lot of five-like mm-hmm. tendencies and in terms of observation mm-hmm. and, you know, more introspection, more introversion, Um and, and sometimes actually detaching as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's more about the, the underlying patterns or the motivations, right? And the, and, the, and the fears, the fixations as well, where I was like, oh, you know, actually I'm, I'm much more mm-hmm. in a one pattern um, because it's not about amassing knowledge for me. It's about... It, understanding the truth with a certain degree of purity, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and the reason why I was surprised, I was, um, you know, I, I gravitated towards one 
was because I never thought of myself as a perfectionist. In fact, I was, you know, kind of, I felt like I was sort of the anti-perfectionist when I was a kid. I couldn't really do anything right. Um, and so even that, that, that name, you know, the archetype of the perfectionist for ones um, doesn't feel true to my experience. It's more like about purist. Um, but, you know, but I see more patterns now. Well, let me just say there, oh, yeah. as you know, there are three subtypes, right? Yeah. Self-preservation, one-to-one, and social. So only the self-preservation one tries to be perfect. Mm. And uh, the one-to-one uh, one tries to do it with individual people. But the social one um, is, uh, the, the, the one-to-one one actually does it with causes. But the social one is, uh, is a teacher. Mm. And it seeks to, they don't necessarily seek to teach but they seek to embody ways of being that others may learn from. Mm. Interesting. And so if I can go on for a moment on a little riff about how I have come to see you, this image that I described about whether you say swimming upward or being propelled upward, with resistance to it being pushed upward, however you describe mm-hmm. it, there is this upward movement. Mm-hmm. So what I, and we haven't covered all of this, but I'll ask you to comment on it. When you were a child in a heavily evangelical Christian uh, family in Texas, where you were in a small minority of Asian children, uh, very large white mm-hmm. schools, where you were teased, you know, or tormented Mm -hmm. or whatever the right word is. Family dynamics where it wasn't always easy for you. Uh, There was a lot of time where you were self-doubting. You've even described times at which you hated yourself, you Mm -hmm. know, that you really didn't like yourself. So you came from this place of being a minority, but in an evangelical family that the, your parents had founded this church and there was, you were some, some ways seen as the perfect family in the church community, you go up through high school. You're not necessarily expected to go to college, but you apply to college and you get in. You finish college very well. Nobody expects you to go to medical school you go to medical school, you excel. Nobody expects you to become an internal medicine doc, but you do a residency, you excel. Not only do you excel, but you're offered the position of chief resident. You turn it down, right? And so in each area that I've seen you in and the time I've known you of of, uh, integrative medicine, functional medicine, Um, uh, intuitive medicine, though you didn't pursue that in depth the way Mm -hmm. you pursued the others. But let's just take integrative medicine and functional medicine. And then with two Qigong teachers, in each new field that you enter, whether you are swimming upward or propelled upward, within a remarkably short period of time, 
you have mastered that area to the point where the teacher asks you to take a primary role in disseminating it. When I met you, uh, you had, or when, when you started your book, your memoir, Brave New uh, Medicine, you, um, you didn't know a lot about writing. I, I but you took yet. a course with your father-in-law, Adam Hochschild, at Berkeley. Yeah. You were worried about whether you were going to fail the course. You turned out to be one of the best students in the course. You then wrote this extraordinary memoir and got very good at writing. So what I'm pointing to and asking you to receive this mm -hmm. without deflecting it is a, a life tendency to either swim upward or be propelled upward toward excellence in a whole series of fields, and then to be regarded by your peers in these fields as a mentor, mm -hmm. as a teacher, and yet maintaining this tremendous personal humility and some level sense of humor about the whole enchilada. So, I invite you to mm. comment on that, whether you think I've gotten some of it wrong, mm. but as a friend observing yeah. you, uh, what do you make of this? Um, I, I do think, yeah, I, I do take it with a sense of humor, you know? <laughs> um, it is funny. Um, I do see it, well, first of all, um, thank you for that reflection. And, um, you know, and I do, um, I do try, or I, I'll say I do practice observing that and receiving it. Um, but also, you know, again, be, and I think this is where also the field, I, and I know this is part of the Qigong teaching, is that when we are really attuned to the field and being collective as one, that we do each have our unique individual lessons that we need to learn, but also our unique gifts. And at the same time, we're just, we're all the same, you know, on this, on this other level. So I, I receive all of those together um, because I don't feel like I, I got anywhere by myself, you know? And, um, yeah, and I'm very cognizant of certainly the visible people, you know, the people. I mean, and mentors like you and Rachel. Um, and, you know, and my partner, our family, our communities, uh, really just being part of that, you know. So I'm very aware of that. Um, and slowly recognizing, okay, but each of us also has our own journey and our own sort of calling like you know what are we going to and again I don't I don't want to extol kind of the invisible forces and like nothing else matters no actually it's about manifesting and expressing so each of us what are you what are we called to manifest and, and and express and so in that sense I do find it kind of funny you know and and yeah like also recognize okay you know what I, I did learn to write, you know, and I and I know some people work on the memoirs for their entire lives. And okay, and I kind of wrote that and and did that. But I also, again, I feel a little bit guided, actually a lot guided, 
you know? And with Teacher Wei, with the, the book that I edited um, on Qigong, that one, it was almost like a blur. I mean, actually, I look at the book and it doesn't, I don't even quite remember the process. And I, I feel like it was because I was just propelled and I was just kind of the instrument. And um, so it's, you know, again, it's, it's not so much like uh, hiding or discounting or putting myself down. It's more that I really just, I don't even know, you know, sometimes how things manifest. Uh, but something's happening through me, and then I'm grateful to be a vehicle. Of service. Yeah. I'll count that as yes. either a very skillful deflection or... <laughs> it wasn't, I didn't mean it's a deflection. And you know, and what's and I, I think I, I shared this with you once in writing because you brought up the Enneagram, was that what I really enjoy doing is taking frameworks Mm-hmm. just to different scales, yeah. right? So it is. So even, even in, work, in the work of like healing and, and we'll just, you know, we'll just, I can talk about the invisible fields too, is seeing how different personas or archetypes, enneotypes respond and manifest in the field, right? So it is. So it's more like, you know what? I see myself as like, oh yeah, you know what? With spaces with people with groups and when I do my healing work with using the field I'm I'm much more focused on organizing and bringing order to things right which is very much a one characteristic Mm. and so I recognize that not as a limitation or a fixation but oh that's my gift Mm -hmm. I know how to bring order I can rearrange furniture in a room that makes it just look neater even if it's the same amount of stuff in a room, right? And people have told me that time and time again. Oh, I can do that with energy. And so, and then I watch like one of my fellow collaborators in in Teacher Way's community, one of my primary collaborators is very clearly, very strongly seven, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just see like she brings a certain enthusiasm and a certain uh, activation to the field. And like, that's her gift. And, you know, and so like, Taking the Enneagram to that level is also mm-hmm. really cool to me. Um, and it's more expansive and it's more fluid. And then because it's work, it's talking about these subtler fields, it's harder to get attached to. Mm. What have we not spoken of that you might want to add or mention as we move toward a close? Mm, I don't know. We've covered quite a bit. Um, I just want to express gratitude. We've talked about doing this for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I, when I, I talk about these spiritual biographies or whatever we want to call it, as, you know, everybody wants to do these, you know, tweets or these three-minute heavily edited uh, things just like the slow food movement. Mm-hmm. I like to talk about the slow, <laughs> uh, the slow conversation, mm. the That's conversation beautiful. that actually has enough space yeah. uh, to try to understand what is essential mm. about another human being, and in our case, to try to 
do that along with sharing the journey of a friendship that's just been tremendously precious to both of us, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm 80, and it's in the nature of these things that one never knows how long one is going to continue to manifest on the mm-hmm. physical plane. And so I wanted to have this conversation together just as a marker for us if whatever else other people find in it. Um, so I'm just very grateful that you were willing to sit down oh and have this conversation yeah. with me. No, I'm so grateful. And I guess, you know, I mean, it's funny, you, yeah, you kind of um, are closing with our friendship is I think the, the one question I wanted to ask you um, in closing is, you know, just like we were talking about, you know, letting go of attachments and just, you know, different evolution, different stages of how we have evolved individually, but also our friendship has has been forced to evolve, right? Because mm-hmm. as one person changes, the other one, mm-hmm. if you don't change, it's fine too, but the, something about the friendship changes. And, um, but it is this wave, right? It's this continuous wave. And I'm curious, yeah, like if you have any thoughts on what the next chapter of our friendship, you know, mm-hmm. mentorship, co-mentorship, whatever you want to call it. But um, yeah, what what's in store? Well, you used the term about yourself when you're talking about Enneagram One, not of uh, perfection, but uh, the but purity, right? And I think. Um, you know, I really do hold uh, with um, the view that uh, actually the teachings in different traditions are different, but some of the traditions hold friendship as a particularly valuable form of human connection. Mm-hmm. Because when it, one is in a marriage or a partnership of that kind or a work relationship, there's there are all the forms of entanglement that go with living with another human being or, you know, working with somebody. Um, but friendship, in the ideal sense, I think, is something where you simply wish the best for the other human being, mm-hmm. you know. And you uh, walk with them and accompany them, and that walking together into the key field or the Christ field or the Krishna Buddha, you know, I call myself a Jewish Christian Buddhist yogic Sufi with Taoist influences, you know, so however you describe the field, it doesn't matter. Whether you describe it in purely scientific terms, it doesn't matter. But as you said, scientifically, we are clearly immersed in field. That's just how Mm -hmm. it is. And so the companions that you find to walk with you through these field immersions uh, with as little baggage and entanglement as possible, I think that over time with friendship, there can be a purification Mm. that some of the Various because friends can be entangled too, and so Absolutely. some of those 
earlier forms of entanglement gradually drop away. Mm. And then the question remains that when one person transitions, as Kurt did, to the other side or into the mystery or whatever it is, uh, does the friendship uh, continue? Mm. Or if there have been previous lives or future lives, uh, where have there been manifestations together or not? You know, um, but uh, I think that there's a, a version of this about love, which, as you point out, means different things in different contexts. But there's the thing about whatever, I can never remember it actually, but being loved gives you strength and loving gives you courage. Or maybe it's the opposite. I can't remember mm. which way it goes. But I think deep friendship can give one both strength and courage. That's what mm. I think. And um, the ability to be able to share what is precious to us with someone without judgment and with a sense that confidence will be held and trust is profound about um, a shared journey. That's a very precious thing mm. to me. So, and I've, I've been blessed with, uh, as you have been blessed with, um, quite a few friends and, um, you know, my 40-year marriage to my beloved Charles, and um, I've been blessed with both friendships and, and deep love experiences. Um, this friendship has been important to me, and it has been part of my own growth in a very deep way. Anything you'd like to add? No, just gratitude. Cynthia Lee, physician, author, healer, friend, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Cynthia Lee and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. When I go down, down to the water, by the water, I feel home. Water could feel my body.